Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about finding meaning, joy, and purpose in what we do. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates strategic advantage and is also a key lever for creating the world that we all want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. With me on the show today is Paul Gibbons. Paul is the author of The Spirituality of Work and Leadership, Finding Meaning, Joy, and Purpose in What You Do. So Paul, welcome back. And please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi. Yeah, good to be here. Good to see you again. I'm a senior advisor to Deloitte right now to their human capital practice. And we're talking about something called the future of change management, which is can we design change management tools that are fit for digital transformations and 21st century organizations rather than models that were devised in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so that's a topic I'm very passionate about. I used to be a CEO of a coaching firm for about a decade. I was a professor for about a decade. I was a banker for about a decade, and I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers for about a decade. So that makes me 100? really old. Really, I about 100, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of different careers, each of which have been rewarding in different ways. So, and, you know, I have hobbies. I am well known for playing poker and I like to get out and do yoga and CrossFit. And so, uh, yeah, kind of a very rich life. Wonderful. Thank you. So conversations about meaning and purpose at work are both very old and very new. Spirituality provides a lens for these conversations and workplace spirituality helps us understand issues such as fulfillment, engagement, purpose, leadership, and more. However, it also increases worries about values, conflicts, and how well organizations can handle that. So Paul joins me today to discuss the spirituality of work and leadership for leaders and their organizations. Paul, why did you choose to write this book? I I know we've interviewed you in the past about your substantial work in the change management space. Are these connected? They are and they aren't. I mean, I, I wrote my master's thesis on workplace spirituality in 2000, and it was downloaded, I don't know, 14,000 times, I think it's been downloaded. That's a lot of downloads. And so part of me in 2019 said, hey, I'll just update my master's thesis, and it'll take me six weeks, and I'll put a cover on it. And nine months later, my 80-page master's thesis was an 800-page book. So uh, I did the world a favor and split the book into two. And the second volume we're not going to talk about is Capitalism, Culture, and Sustainability. The first half is the more individual side of workplace spirituality, which is meaning, purpose, happiness, leadership, finding book, the, a career you love. That's the current book. That's the book that probably best we talk about today. You're right. It's a really old conversation. So obviously... You know, are workplaces places of meaning, joy, and purpose? And the answer is, at their no. best, maybe. Generally, no. <laughs> but there's a lot of rhetoric in the world today about how younger employees, for example, would give up some salary for having a job that's aligned with their values. Or there's a lot of conversations today about finding purpose and meaning. I, I think Ray Dalio writes about that. He's a hedge fund guy. So I think if you read around the popular business writing, we're talking a lot about how we can make 
the future of work more purposeful and full of meaning and joy. So that's cool. And one of the things for sure about that is we weren't talking about in the 19th century, right? That's not something that during the heart of the Industrial Revolution and child labor and before trade unions, we wouldn't talk about any of these things. It would, they would have been a silly conversation. In the 80s, I think I would have been thought a really strange guy if I started to talking about how can we help staff find meaning in the work? How can we help them dedicate themselves to higher purpose? Right? I would have been looked as a weirdo. I'm still looked at as a weirdo. But now those conversations are legit. Wouldn't you say, Maureen, you travel the business world. What do you think? You know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of the arc of my career and starting in the 80s where you had friends outside of work and you went to work to do your work for the most part. And you weren't supposed to stand out. Women wore the same suits men did and bow ties and things like that. And equally, we didn't stand out for discussing our personal lives. And that was true, I think, for me into the 90s, although I was reading about spirituality and work and it seemed very interesting, it was just an interesting stack of books to read. But there was, at that point, no mechanism to connect them. So as you talk about fast-forwarding to where we are now and the significant shift away from I am a part in a machine just as a human in the Industrial Revolution, we seem to be now firmly into the next wave, whatever you call that, knowledge working or whatever. And we do seem to expect people to bring their hearts as well as their minds and their hands to work. And their souls, some would say. Some would say, I want your soul and I want your values and I want your purpose and I want you to be deeply connected to your work in in ways that we wouldn't have talked about it that way in the the 80s or 70s, would we now, Maureen? We wouldn't talk about deep connection to work back then. Well, you don't remember the 70s. (laughs) Well, I wasn't. (laughs) I was working in high school, but yeah, there was no talk about my soul. We talk about this, and this is one of our first topics, is do we take it seriously? Because in interviewing researchers who are saying folks are less likely to follow someone of a different political party or someone of a different ethnicity, my assumption is people are also less willing to follow folks of a significantly different religious path. And I realize religion and spirituality are not the same, but if people are espousing something that others are adamantly against, it creates a complexity in the workplace that may offset the value. Well, you know, you're right, but you've kind of jumped ahead to to chapter eight or chapter 12, which is the sort of practicalities of, is this opening the door to more conflict or are we creating, is this a Pandora's box that we just, just do not wish to open? And let's come to that. I mean, first of all, I mean, I think if you have the belief that spirituality is constitutive of human beings, that we all are in some senses spiritual, even if we don't use the label, if you think that human beings are, you know, because of being a human being, right, from evolutionary biology and how we build businesses of one million people born to kind of work in community with one another and for one another, if you think that human beings have, all have a will to purpose, if you think that we all need meaning in our lives, and that's not an unusual idea, that's a psychological Mm -hmm. idea from the 60s and Maslow, for example, 
So if you think that all of those things are true, and you think all of those things are part of spirituality, meaning purpose and community and connectedness, then spirituality is something that belongs to all of us by virtue of being a human being. What do you think of that idea? I do agree. And yet many people, and you and I both are educated in the developmental psychology work, at the earlier stages of Maslow, it is often a luxury people don't get to experience in the ways that we do. I think most people aspire to it. I don't know that most people experience it in their daily lives. You know, if I'm struggling to put food on the table for my family, having purpose in my work is, is a thing somebody writes about in a blog. It's not a thing I do. Yeah, and, and it's a good point, and it's a point worth raising is whether I do cover Maslow in the book as a step along the way to today. But then we could also double check our thinking here. You know, there are places in the world where people live in great privation, but yet community is important to them. Meaning is important to them. They can be deeply devotional in their spiritual practices. Mother Teresa never was a rich woman, but I think most people would think that she was a spiritual woman. So you know, that's one of the questions that's been raised about Maslow and which we can raise about this also is that, is it true? And you're right. You know, one of the things I wrote in one of my books on this is, is this idea of workplace spirituality, the quote unquote worried, the worried wealth, you know, if you're flipping burgers for eight seventy five an hour and someone smarty pants came and said, you know, to talk to you about meaning and purpose, would you look at them as if they were an alien? And you might, and you might rightly look at them as if they were an alien. It's something that only people of great privilege can talk about. That's a pity. But I think that's, that's what you're saying. Well, and I don't want to minimize the fact that even if you're living on a dollar a day, you may have a much stronger spiritual connection and practice than I do. I'm not trying to say that people who are more economically well-off are more spiritual. I was more saying we have choices. Vocational choices. Yeah. And if I'm doing some sorts of jobs and, you know, the other is that we can find purpose in a lot of very basic activities, whether they're paid or unpaid. That's the other is people do all kinds of things that aren't paid, but may have a lot of purpose. Yeah, they say the, what to say, chop wood, carry water. You find meaning in doing the dishes and in cleaning the kitchen and in hugging your child and prosaic day-to-day activities. Indeed, you could say that that's really well-applied spirituality. That's spirituality that really matters is the spirituality of day-to-day life. The spirituality that infects, infests, infects, I'm not sure what the right word is, to uh, all, all aspects of our lives. And I think I think that's the kind of spirituality that great spiritual leaders have said we should aspire to. So it's not something that you practice on Sunday at mass or whatever your religious belief might be between 11 and 11.35. And then you go out and do life and sort of forget most of that stuff. So we are talking about the spirituality of of lived life. It's actually something that Judaism calls householder spirituality. But Maureen, if I may, let me tell you something about the question of diversity, which you raised, because 
we've now talked a little bit about religion. We haven't really talked about new age. We haven't talked about Native American spirituality. So the question for workplaces, which are going to have people from all different backgrounds and beliefs, right? No question. You know, fundamentalist Christians, if you work in a big place, you have people who are into native spirituality. You might have some pagan and goddess spirituality. You'll have a ton of new age spirituality. You'll have some Buddhists. You'll have some Jews, some Muslims. So which one of them has the idea of spirituality right? And I want to say all. I don't want to restrict spirituality to a single faith tradition or a single kind of new agey tradition or a single Asian religion or a single Native American tradition. I don't want to restrict it there because I think it's too human. It's too fundamental to human beings to kind of say, only my tradition will get you there. And so I also want to uh, rehabilitate spirituality for atheists, humanists, and environmentalists, because I think if you read the great environmental writer, Rachel Carson, for example, the relationship she had with nature was very deep and very special. If you read her writing, it sounds spiritual, even though she doesn't use the word. If you think about the humanist writings on social justice and equality and maximization of the human beings, human potential, that for me is deeply spiritual stuff. Carl Sagan and Arbor Einstein found spirituality in the wonder of the cosmos. So I think if you're going to think about spirituality correctly, <laughs> that's a strong word, I know, you want to be able to include the best things from all of those traditions. And what you probably need to do is leave behind a lot of the belief systems and focus on things that are even more abstract, like meaning and purpose and connectedness and devotion and service. And once you start to do that, you find out that all of these people who are pursuing different traditions of various kinds are all after the same thing. I agree. And I'm glad we're defining how you look at spirituality because I am of a very strong commitment that it is inappropriate, especially as leaders in a workplace, to diminish anyone's religious or faith traditions as one is better than the other if I want to create harmony in the workplace. It is not my job as your leader to evaluate your values unless they are something like you believe we should kill all people of X group. Then, of course, that's a legal question and a values question. Yes, indeed. So if we accept that in a pluralist workplace, is it okay? It might not be okay for me to talk to someone about my faith tradition, but it might be okay to, for me to ask a staff member whether they're feeling that their current work is connected with their purpose. And questions of purpose and meaning are very closely related to questions about career. Is your career on purpose? Are you deriving meaning for your day-to-day activities? Do leaders support you creating meeting? Do they create shared meeting in the communities that work there? These are all kind of spiritual questions. Mostly they're being tried to answer by the Silicon Valley firms who are particularly interested in that right right way. They're mostly being answered in ways that ignore the history of spirituality and then ignore the definitions. They can end up in a world of trouble. So anyway, I've tried to rehabilitate it for a 21st century audience, an audience that accepts the inevitable plurality of spiritual beliefs, but yet retains the idea that there's still something we can talk about that's not going to have us at war with one another. That's the project of the book. Beautiful. I love that it is encompassing of different perspectives rather than diminishing of. At this point in history, 
we need to find tools and frameworks and paths to allow us to harmonize toward meeting the organization's purpose in a way that also honors and respects individuals' choices and paths and their individual sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Business leaders aren't spiritual leaders and workplaces aren't temples. But yet, if we want to have conversations about meaning and purpose, what are the tools that leaders can have at their disposal, which allows them to do that in a way that respects the plurality of beliefs? Now, I don't say this is easy, by the way, because I was a member of the Academy of Management executive in 2000. And there was a group at the Academy of Management called Management Spirituality and Religious at Work. And we had a 25 professors sitting around in a circle at one of our meetings. And, you know, somebody had a guitar because there was a kind of hippie vibe to the whole thing. And then we were talking about workplace spirituality and we were talking about it in very academic and abstract terms. And then there was one man in the corner who was getting progressively redder and redder and more and more angry looking. And then finally he burst out. He says, we're talking about spirituality here, but no one in this room has mentioned God. He's a fun, he was from Oklahoma. He's deeply Christian. I imagine I didn't interview him. Um, and the facilitator, uh, someone called Judy Neal, who's a pioneer in this movement said, I'm trying to be respectful of diversity and respect the fact that people come at spirituality from different angles. But he found that respect for diversity offensive. That was for him, was it, that we were trying to be plural in our definition of spirituality and accommodate all this diversity he thought was blasphemy or apostasy. So you do run into problems, and there are problems. And the number of religiously inspired lawsuits in organizations has soared in the last 25 years. Mostly people suing because they believe in some way that their civil liberties have been infringed or they believe that the workplace is sending messages that conflict with their values. So when we start to talk about these things, as you, you know, you kind of opened with that, we do run into problems of conflict and um, the wise human resources officer will do a lot of work on understanding how to do this. Well, now having said that 15 years ago, I spoke at a 700 person conference hosted by IBM, no less than IBM, on workplace spirituality. Hmm. So it's not like, you know, we're all noobs here, right? We're, it's a conversation that I think leading up organizations, I consider IBM to be a very well-run organization, are beginning to have. So if I were an executive in a company that thought this idea of, I can create a more engaging sustainable, equitable organization by including spirituality in our workplace. What would I think about and what would I do to get that started? And what would I not do so that I avoid immediately falling in a crater? Well, the question of corporate purpose now is a huge one. And you'll read in the book that many of really admired organizations Starbucks, you know, nobody gets a free pass and they're admired by everybody today. This idea of corporate purpose is really upon us now. And I'm sure you are talking to many of your executive clients about corporate purpose, about having purposeful organizations. So that's one place that the CEO can look. Is am I creating the notion of a purposeful business here? 
So that's one question. The second is, is how do I enable people to connect to their own purpose? How do I help them to deepen their appreciation for what they do? And that can involve really prosaic things. Like how do I skill people to upskill people to equip them for the next decade of work? How can I help nourish people in their careers? How can I help nourish the alternative, the lifestyle requirements? They could be work family requirements of a diverse workforce. And I think those are questions that the conscious human resources officer or the CEO can answer. But we also need rules and policies too. If we start to talk about workplace spirituality at work, we'll need to have rules about, for example, religious display or religious solicitation. So we'll need to be able to set boundaries. And, and, and for example, British Airways, there are different problems on the two continents. So in, in Europe, there are strong rules about religious displays at work. And that has created a lot of conflict with the unions as well, because from some people's point of view, it's an interference. I'm talking about prominently displaying a cross or even in France, sometimes wearing the hijab. So there are all sorts of religious symbols and religious imagery and religious talk that you'd want to have boundaries around it while, you know, maintaining people's ability to express themselves fully as, as they want, but also uh-huh. protecting other people in the organization from infringements. So yeah, you need rules as well. So those are some of the things to think about. I mean, a lot of this will fall to the human resources department. So they want to get this right there. You know, in our leader development programs where people do the full scale program, not where they do subsets, the first module is the kind of know yourself. What are your vision, your values, your sense of purpose, and how does that align with your work? So we very much introduce it. Now, for some people, there's a very strong spiritual tone in their purpose. And for others, it isn't quite the 80s. I want to get as much stuff before I die as I can. But Mm. some are much more connected to creating a better world. And others are focused on honestly getting through the day and taking care of their families. And part of that, I think, is place in age in career progression So if I think about my own life, when I first got out of school, my big goal was to get a nice car and live in a decent apartment. I have the luxury of having bigger thoughts now that I have a car and a place to live. So Mm. not that age is the only piece, but back to we address it as people go through these leader programs, whether they're college students, new grads, mid-career folks... And we see pretty consistently an evolution in sense of purpose as people move through the career levels. So not just age, but we see more senior executives that are in their second or third or fourth decade of working than we do five years out of college. And so that sense of purpose seems to evolve. There was one of the theories of the workplace spirituality movement that was promised in the, in the year 2000 was that the millennials were, um, sorry, the boomers were all getting to a stage in life where they started to ask the big questions. Hey, look, I have all this stuff, but, you know, there's something missing. I still feel there's a kind of hole in my soul. And um, if I keep putting stuff in it, you know, it's not going to get the job done because I already have plenty of stuff, but I still feel like there's kind of emptiness. And that was one theory 
uh, sort of a developmental theory of it that as you got older, questions of meaning and purpose became more important. I don't think it's true. I think it's partly different generations will have different mm-hmm. different conversations about it. I think you're more likely at 50 to ask yourself, what's my legacy and what am I going to leave to the world? But I think also the younger, the Gen Zs and the, and the millennials are much more apt to ask questions like, am I fulfilled in my work? Does it connect with my values? You know, back in the day, we wouldn't have asked that question. I was on Wall Street. Values were bling and money and profits and things that you could buy with them. We weren't, didn't ask ourselves the hard questions about whether I'm living my values. Today, it would be very uncommon for me to lead a, meet a leader that does not, at least in some sense, have done some values work on themselves, have thought about what my values are and how I bring them to them. They may not be good at it yet, and they may not have fully integrated it yet, but it's not unusual today to talk about values at work. 30 years ago, it would have been really weird. Well, and we start those conversations, at least in the programs I teach, at a university and an MBA level. So we are starting it younger. And to your point, the data is really clear that younger folks, I think is an accurate statement, people are now wanting to trade money for freedom. For That's doing- what the researcher says. They're not willing to make the bargain with the devil that you might have done in the 1980s they're less likely to want to do that. And so the spirituality question, Father, you're right in the sense that people as they mature through their careers start to think about these things more. It's also, I think it's not necessarily more, but differently. You want to set yourself up so that you're leading your career has a purposeful direction or one kind or another. You want to start now by thinking about, you know, your purpose at work and what you're giving to the world. And, you know, I don't think that's such a silly conversation to have with teenagers either. You know, what do you want to, you know, what seems to you right now, they don't really know, but that doesn't mean it's too early to start talking about like, what is a purposeful life? What do you get meaning from? Is it from nature? Is it from science? Is it from devotional work serving others? And these questions about career values, I I just don't think there's any age at which it's too early to talk about them. I think junior achievement does some of that. What brings you joy? And then how do you find work and career that align with that? Yep. You do a lot of work that could be called spiritual in your leadership programs, but that's an evolution. The workplace spirituality movement was white hot in the 1990s. There were hundreds of conferences a year, hundreds of conferences a year on workplace spirituality in the 1990s. And there were about 100 books published on workplace spirituality in the 1990s. And I think that's all faded from us now, right? We don't really talk about it very much anymore We're talking about the ideas underneath, but we're not talking about spirituality in the workplace quite as much as we used to. But I think that you can have conversations today about purpose and meaning and legacy and values at work is partly due to the fact that a lot of these books that have now faded and are growing gray on Mm -hmm. bookshelves, yellow on bookshelves, did open up the possibility to have conversations about those ideas at work. And the other thing that's changed about workplaces, of course, since the 1970s and the 1980s, it's it's cool to talk about sustainability and are you a good actor in the world? Uh, It's one of the questions that's more from the other book is that, you know, I say it's a good standard if you stay in a neighbor's house, right? Say you apartment swap with somebody in San Francisco because you you and your partner want a holiday, right? You leave it better than you found it. That'd be a good standard, right? If it was a friend, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. What's our relationship with our habitat? 
do we day after day leave this planet better than it was? Is it better at 8 p.m. than it was at 8 a.m.? And the answer is no. The fight we are still fighting now is how do we prevent the damage? How do we hurt it less? How do we damage the biosphere and the climate less? Not how do we leave them better? Not how do we restore some of the things that have been destroyed through industrialization to their former glory? But it's like kind of the conversations today is how do we stay out of jail? How do we avert disaster? Conversations about corporate sustainability weren't around in the 1980s. It would have been seen really weird in my early, you know, I worked in big blue chip banks and big blue chip consulting firms. It would have been really weird 40 years ago or 30 years ago to talk about sustainability at work or to talk about corporate social responsibility or environmental social responsibility. It would have been fruity, hippie, you know. And so now we can we talk about that all the time. So I actually am really positively disposed to think about the evolution in workplaces. Not that workplaces are perfect and, you know, Amazon struggles with unions and we still have problems with child labor. We certainly have problems still with pollution. We have problems with fossil fuel consumption. So I'm not like any of these bad things have gone away, but I think over the last, over my, you know, one of the advantages of getting old is you have a certain amount of perspective. Over my life, the conversations that we're allowed to have have changed a ton. You know, I think it's really important what you're saying. I recently interviewed an SVP from Citibank who focuses on ESG, so environmental, social, and governance. And organizations like Citi and BlackRock and others are now investing more heavily in companies who are being socially responsible. It is no longer an option if you're getting money from some of the bigger enterprises to just ignore this and do nothing. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. And there are funds today, you know, I ran a consulting firm and uh, we wanted a pension plan which avoided tobacco. I can't remember all, all the sin things, tobacco, firearms and fossil fuels. I can't remember what it was. A lot of hippies working for me. And uh, we wanted our, our pension money not to go to wherever a hedge fund manager thought it ought to go, but we wanted our pension money to go towards businesses, at least screening out sort of bad businesses with which we didn't want our money involved. And it was a chore. We actually had to get a Sharia fund, which is really weird. <laughs> but this was 20 years ago. And that wouldn't happen today. So if I said, if I was running a company today and I wanted to set up a, a pension plan for my employees, I wouldn't have any difficulty finding a screened fund that screened out, you know, pornography, child labor, you know, all the worst things, all the worst, the things that most peop reasonable people agree are bad for the world. So it, it seems like we've now moved a little bit to the evolution of spirituality in the workplace and the difference of languaging that you and I both were reading books, going to conferences, all that stuff in the 90s. I don't use the language very often, but to your point, it's embedded in things like how we talk about resilience and people who have a deep sense of purpose are more resilient. So while I don't necessarily say people who have a deep relationship with God, because there are so many even different names for God that it is, I just don't use that language. And yet we are pointing to what you're calling spirituality. That's right. I mean, I have a couple of, I think, really, I mean, this is the book, the book of spirituality, work and leadership is the work of mine. 
which I'm most pleased with. And it's not going to be a bestseller like the Science of Organizational Change or Impact was. But the hard work that I've done in this book is over 25 years. And one of the things that I've tried to do is define critically and academically a spirituality that I think could make room for, if I spoke to an evangelical Christian, they might say, I can find myself there. If I speak to a humanist, if I speak to a Native American spiritualist, they say, yeah, I can find myself there. And so I've tried to define it in that way, but I've also done it based on, you know, academic research. The book is probably too academic for some people and not academic enough for others, but, you know, you got to make, you got to make a decision one way or the other there. So let's come back to some of the more practical pieces. How does spirituality, in your view, relate to the workplace? You know, we've talked about to 2021. As we look at the next decade or two or three decades, how will this unfold? And what should leaders, current leaders, emerging leaders, and employees be thinking about with regard to bringing conversations about spirituality, bringing a sense of purpose to work. How do we unpack that a little bit? Well, one of the chapters in the book is on spirituality and happiness. So I think that's something that I can, I'll just say where the places to look is. So one is spirituality and happiness and whether conversations about spirituality can help us understand the roots of human happiness. Also, one question I'm deeply passionate about is, is that the right question? And I'm more committed to an idea called human flourishing, which is a much broader and deeper idea than human happiness. There are questions we need to answer about happiness and wealth, for example. That's interesting because we're kind of seduced by the idea I was raised in the United States, uh, primarily that, that the path to happiness was one that was intimately tied with how wealthy you were. That was the American dream when I was raised in the 1960s and 1970s was that the house and the two cars and the, you know, a certain amount of luxury and comfort and the big savings account. So I answered questions about that, or at least I proposed some answers to questions about that. The other chapter in the book that will be really interesting to readers is on spirituality and vocation choice. So you're coming at it kind of from like, what do I do as a CEO? One way to come at spirituality and work is purely personal. This is my life and I want to be the author of my life and I want to construct for myself a career, a portfolio of activities, a trajectory in my life that is grounded in my most deeply held beliefs and principles. That's kind of a standard thing. But to do that, you have to be able to integrate some views that could be called spiritual, like what's most important to you in life. And you need to integrate your own spirituality with your own working life. So that's like a personal job. That's nobody else's mm -hmm. responsibility. You know, so if you're an evangelical Christian, you know, don't work for a company that sells pornography. Don't work for Barnes & Barnes Noble has a shelf full of pornography. If you're an environmentalist, don't work for Exxon. You know, begin to construct your career in such a way that it's aligned with values. And so I offer a lot of tools to do that for how to create that sort of internal value alignment. And so at least two thirds of this book is like directed towards individuals. How do I sort myself out? so that I can be more, more fulfilled, so that I can find deeper meaning, so that I can find purpose in life. And it's only at the end of the book that I begin to talk about what does that mean for leaders? Because as I say, you know, leaders aren't spiritual gurus and workplaces aren't temples. But if it's important that employees grow spiritually, then what's your role as a leader in facilitating that? That's how the conversation goes. <laughs> So let's go to the focus on leadership. 
because that is the focus of our program. And I'm curious, what is the role of the leader, organizational leader, not priest or rabbi or um, other? The kind of guys guys we have as clients, guys and gals we have as Uh clients. Yeah. 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 What's their job? So one of the pages that's quite interesting in the book is we think about ideal work. Like what is ideal work? And how would you, in a utopian sort of way, create an ideal job? And it will vary from from person to person. I call it the art of the ideal because Trump was president and I wanted to (laughs) make a play on his book. So the art of the ideal is like work is a balance of secular and spiritual rewards. So the secular rewards are obviously dough. I want to make some moolah. And there are obviously things like praise and rewards and all of that, right? And promotions and all that goody stuff. And then there'll be spiritual rewards. Well, how deeply fulfilling is it for you? Do you feel like you're making a difference? So that's one dimension of ideal work. There'll be other dimensions about ideal work, which are about my growth as an individual, as a human being. There'll be another question about ideal work, which is to do with values and values alignment. So those are all questions that, as an individual, needs to worry about. So what's that got to do with the chief executive? The chief executive wants to make it easy to discuss those things with people and for them to have working lives that, where they can manifest those things. One of the ways is, of course, community. That's one tool that they can use. They can think about communities of interest. Some workplaces have spiritual interest groups. You and I have talked in the past about spiral dynamics, is how do we help human beings grow developmentally. The idea was that we stop growing when we reach our maximum height is one that, you know, is considered laughable today. But a lot of developmental psychology up until the 1960s stopped at the age of 17. We don't think about human development that way anymore. And most people today would look back on their late teens and think, oh my God, I've learned so much, (laughs) hopefully. (laughs) And so how do we facilitate those developmental processes? And so these are the things that need to be a concern of a leader. And I'm not talking about new age leaders. I'm not talking about Ben and Jerry's. I'm not talking about a bunch of hippies. I'm talking about Gray Dalio, who runs a hedge fund. I'm talking about Tim Cook, who runs Apple. These are the sorts of people, leaders, I think in both cases, admirable leaders, who are having these conversations inside their workplaces. In my book, I spent a lot of time with some of the ideas of Satya Nadella, chief executive of Microsoft. Mm-hmm. These are the kind of conversations that he's having. So these are not the kind of conversations that, like, you know, as I said, Ben and Jerry's is my favorite example. You know, a couple of guys that, you know, looks like they just smoked weed and, you know, a hippie, free love kind of 1960s company. We're talking about people who are still dedicated to the profit motive at work, but realize that. First of all, there's more to life than the profit motive. There's more to corporations than the profit motive. And that you can get both. That you can both care for your people and help them grow and still fulfill your responsibilities to shareholders. Those are some of, some of the ideas I have about six or seven different ways of looking at leadership and spirituality. One that's personal to me is mine is this idea of accountability. So early in your life, you're accountable only for your own results. In fact, that's what you teach your children to do. You teach them to be accountable for themselves, to look after their finances and to clean their room and to do their homework and to fulfill their obligations to their parents and to their school, right? That's personal accountability. And then you go into the workplace and maybe you get a few years into your career and all of a sudden you have a team of people working for you. If you're a good manager, you're accountable for their results. You can't say, oh, you know, so-and-so's an asshole and didn't do the work. 
forget the language. So-and-so did in New York. That You would be considered to be a bad manager if you started to blame people around you for poor performance. Because guess what, bro? It's down to you, right? You're, you're in the hot seat. The buck stops with you. So those are different levels. And as you grow higher in your leadership development career, you get to be accountable for more. That's unquestionable. So you're not just any longer perhaps accountable for your team, but you might be on a cross-functional team that's tasked with delivering results across the organization. Again, it's only a child that would say, hey, my part over here is cool, but so-and-so is not pulling their weight or so-and-so is inept or blah, blah, blah. That's not the way sports teams work. And that's not the way great leadership teams work. So your accountability has grown. It's almost sideways now. You're accountable for the results of your peers, as well as just for yourself and as well as for your team. And as we see this picture of accountability growing, we get all the way up to senior leadership roles where, you know, you take on accountability for the whole organization. You know, it stops with you. If there's a rot in the organization, your leadership at somehow or another needs to find fault. And great leaders, as I'm sure you believe, also first look at what's my role in creating the system that caused this. So those are levels of accountability, but there's a final level of accountability that's sort of non-managerial and non-business is accountability to a cause or a purpose or something much bigger than ourselves. And, you know, when we stop and choose people who we truly admire in the world, this is all sides of the political spectrum, but I'm going to pick one from one side. I'm going to pick Greta Thunberg. Uh, Greta's 13 years old or She's not now, she's 17 or 18 now. But when she was 13 years old, she took a stand for a world that began to take climate change seriously. So this Asperger's, she's on the spectrum. She's 13 years old. She lives in Sweden, not in the United States or Germany. It's because of her commitment, because of her accountability, that she rose to the prominence she said. Had she said, hey, I want the schools in my neighborhood to recycle, more. She wouldn't have been on the global stage, but because she took on an accountability that much bigger than herself, she will be someone who stands up as one of the important figures of the 21st century, lover or hater. She's, you know, on all the newspapers. Let's take Mohandas K. Gandhi or Martin Luther King. You know, there's a time that Martin Luther King couldn't get a seat at the table, you know, that the United States in the 1950s and early 1960s. But because of his commitment and his dedication, his purpose and his accountability for the liberation and emancipation of black people in the United States, Martin Luther King became a global figure, someone that we name streets after today. And it's the same with Gandhi. Gandhi was uh, poor. He had no political representation. He had no capital. Yet he stood for the liberation of India. So by standing for something bigger than yourself, you attract followers. And we both, I think, agree that leaders need to attract followers, not just through incentives and financial incentives, but by creating our accountability as something huge. We are making a leadership move that I think, and many of the leaders, and we can talk about Elon Musk, you know, you could even argue that some of the far right leaders of the last few decades have created accountability to not principles I would particularly endorse or something, but things much bigger than themselves. I mean, America first is such a is such a notion. I think it's retrograde myself. But, you know, that's one of the things that was appealing to people. It was a stand and a commitment that was much bigger than him. 
So that's a leadership tool. And so when I coach people, chief financial officer, chief executive officer, chief information officer of a company, I'm constantly getting them to think bigger than just their team, bigger than just their organization. So for example, I was coaching guys as chief executive of a bank in England. And I said, I don't want you to have a stand on where this bank's going. I want you to have a stand on where England is going. What is your point of view on UK PLC? What is UK, where is the UK going to be in two decades time in the world? And how is your bank going to help the UK manifest that purpose? And those are the sorts of questions that I think truly great leaders ask of themselves. Is what's the big game I can play here? Because when you start playing a big game, people line up and follow you if it's a good enough game. That's my, that's my, one of my tools, if you want, on leadership and spirituality is this notion of accountability. What do you think, my leadership expert, Maureen? I probably went too long. <laughs> I appreciate the idea, especially that if we start with the end in mind and going back to something you said earlier, what's my legacy? So if I'm at a C-level role in a sizable company, I've probably been working for a while and I'm in a position where I can actually leave a legacy. And so asking that question, what's the biggest role I can play? Because I'm in a privileged spot. I get to make an influence that not everyone does. So what's the biggest thing I can do to bring that about? It is, I think, brilliant. We speak the same language. We've been talking about this stuff for a decade. <laughs> so we have. We've got the four-minute warning. So do you have any other tools that you want to make sure that our listeners walk away with? One tool I can't stop talking about enough is a tool that is not one of mine. It's Japanese, the Ikigai tool, the Ikigai career purpose tool. I, I think it's a very powerful way to think about your work is what am I going to get incentivized for and rewarded for? So you might want to do something, but if the world's not going to pay you for it, it's a pretty poor career choice, right? You want also to think about what I'm good at. Yeah, you might want to do something, but if you suck at it, it might not be the right place for you to think. I shouldn't take up ballet. It'd be a bad idea. So it's what you love. It's what you're good at. It's what you get paid for, where you can earn some dough, like secular rewards, and also what the world needs. That's the higher purpose stuff. It's what, the, what does the world need? And if you can find a job that you love doing, that you're good at, that pays you good dough, and is fulfilling some higher purpose in the world, gee, you've done a pretty good job. Right. And so it's a really simple tool. And I encourage readers or people that are unfamiliar with Ikigai to dive in there for half an hour and think about their current role and how they would check boxes in their current role. So, you know, am I making a difference? I don't want to make. Am I getting paid when I need to pay? Am I doing work I love? Continue to ask yourself those questions. I think you'll have a very powerful career. Would you spell yep. that? I-K-I-G-A-I. My book has, you know, a little bit on it there, but you can find it elsewhere. Read up on it for three or five minutes and then, uh, then have at it. It's a very practical tool. Great. So repeat the name of your book, how people can get in touch with you, and then we're going to close. It's the Spirituality of Work and Leadership, and it's on Amazon and paulgibbons.net. Great. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. At a point in time where the world is changing dramatically, the idea of having, connecting with our purpose and making an impact because what you do matters 
I strongly encourage you to take a look at Paul's work. Think about how you are connecting with purpose, irrespective of how you define it. And whether that is your paid work or your unpaid work, what you do matters. And so we encourage you to be accountable, as Paul talked about, to being your best self and making your best impact in our world. Thank you for listening. Please share the podcast with others and continue to listen and continue to innovate how you lead in the world.